Friends, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 12? We're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 12. I'm going to read the first eight verses from this chapter. Um, this is a conversation between Jeremiah and God. Actually, more appropriately, it's an argument between Jeremiah and God. Jeremiah is going to speak, and God's going to respond, and we'll hear that in this passage. So I'm going to begin reading Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root, they grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said he will not see our latter end. God answers Jeremiah. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in a full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me. Therefore, I hate her. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as heavy as this passage, these words, this response is, It opens our eyes once again to an invitation to a sufferer to cry out to you in brutal honesty to speak to you and to know that we hear from you in your word. Let that invitation alone be enough to sustain us as we hear these words. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends... Jeremiah is in a really bad place. He's in a really bad place in his ministry. The book of Jeremiah is not in chronological order, and so we don't exactly know how long he's been in his ministry or where he stands in his ministry. But what we do know from our passage is that he is at his breaking point, and it's for very good reason. Ever since he started his ministry, there has been corruption in the nation of Judah at the highest levels. We hear again and again, kings, officials, landowners, lawmakers, business owners, they're liars, they're cheaters, and they're oppressors. All who rule Judah are wicked. And they should be kept in check by priests and prophets, by shepherds that God has ordained to speak truth to them, to keep them from that wickedness. But that's not happening in the land of Judah. We read back in chapter 2, verse 8, the priests did not even say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal. This is widespread wickedness from the top down. It goes all the way from the palace to the temple. It goes from the courthouse to city hall. 
And for Jeremiah, who's a young man being called into ministry with his own insecurities that he doesn't know how to speak well and he's not up for the challenge, the stress of this ministry is crushing upon him and it has become in his life a full-blown panic attack. He says in chapter 4, verse 19, My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. Jeremiah's having a panic attack. He's losing it in the face of this stress. But it actually gets worse than that. It's one thing to complain about the sins of a nation, that the whole country is going to hell in a handbasket. It's another thing to learn that your hometown has turned against you. Chapter 11, verse 21. The men of Anathoth seek your life and say, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hands. You remember, this is the town that Jeremiah grew up in, the town of Anathoth, which is really a town full of priests. Which means that when Jeremiah speaks and preaches against the priesthood, he's actually preaching against families that he's grown up with and known from his childhood. It's like he's caught between his call from God and these neighbors that he adores and has grown up with. It's no wonder that Jeremiah describes himself in chapter 11 like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. That's how he would describe his ministry. I'm like a lamb that's being led to the slaughter. There's nothing I can do about this call and the danger that it entails. But it gets even worse than that. It's one thing to complain about the nation. It's another thing to complain about your neighborhood. It is an entirely different thing to learn that your own family has turned against you. I'm not talking about a family who disagrees with your vocational and lifestyle choices. I'm talking about a family who wants to kill you. Verse 6 we read, Even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in a full cry after you. Put yourself in the shoes of Jeremiah. He is utterly alone. He has been turned against from the highest levels to the most intimate members of his family. What else is there for him to possibly say? This section has been dubbed by some as Jeremiah's Gethsemane. This is his garden of suffering. This is one of several low points that he will face in his ministry. Now, you and I, as we read this, we might not share these same circumstances with Jeremiah, but what we do share with him is going to become immediately apparent. There's a kind of complaint that is kindled in suffering. When we suffer, it creates the grounds for this kind of complaint. It's a little smoldering that happens in our hearts. Something happens to us and something within us, it begins to burn. And as it burns, it gets fed with a little bit of fuel of bitterness. We ask the question, why is this happening? Why does this need to happen? And then it's fed with a little kindling of doubt. Is God even good? Does he even know what he's doing? Does he have a plan in all of this suffering? 
And then as that fire grows, it's fed with the breeze in a quest for fairness. If this is happening to me, why is it also not happening to other people? Why do I look around the church and I see smiling Christians, but I suffer and it feels like I suffer these things alone? And before we know it, what started as a smolder in our hearts, it spontaneously combusts into a full grievance that we have against God. Jeremiah cries out to God in verse 1, Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? And then he says this in verse 2, You plant them and they take root. Now it's very hard to read tone of voice, but I hear a bite in verse 2. You plant them. You, God, are the one who plants the wicked. You are the one who put them here. They had to come from somewhere, and if you hadn't planted them, they would not be here. You can talk all you want about theology. You can talk all you want about secondary causes. You can talk all you want about how the fact that God is in control of everything, and yet he is not the author of sin. You can tell me all day long that God is sovereign, that he's good, that he's right, that he's true, that when suffering happens, it's just the collateral damage of a fallen world. But Jeremiah is saying to God, I'm not stupid. If you hadn't put him here, they wouldn't be here, and I would not be suffering. God? This is on you. You're the one that did this. You're the one that put them here. And because you put them here, I am suffering. That's a bold prayer to pray to God. The English poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, he wrote this to God in his suffering. Wert thou my enemy, O thou my friend, how wouldst thou worse, I wonder, than thou dost. In other words, God, if you were my enemy and not my friend, how could you possibly hurt me worse than you hurt me right now? That's a heavy thought. That's a hard thing to pray back to God. Here's a moment of full disclosure. I don't even want to read the answer that God responds to the prophet Jeremiah. I want to get out of the book of Jeremiah. I want to run somewhere else in scripture. There's a lot of other places in the Bible to talk about suffering. I want to grab us and especially the sufferers in this church. And I want to hustle us to Romans chapter 8. I want to take us to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to go to Philippians 1. I want to go to James 1. I want to begin to speak those truths over the sufferers in our midst. I want to tell you that God is going to work all things together for good. I want to tell you that there's nothing in the Lord that is in vain. I want to tell you that God is going to finish everything he starts. I want to tell you that we can rejoice in suffering because God is going to use that to make us perfect. I want to tell us that when we suffer, this is the naughty, ugly, tangled backside of the tapestry. And days from now, weeks from now, months from now, years from now, we're going to flip that thing over and we're going to see the perfect plan of God. And we're going to say, aha, that's why I had to suffer, why I had to suffer. It makes perfect and absolute sense to me. That's good. That's right. There's a place for that. For the most part, that's biblical. 
But that's not at all what God answers Jeremiah. The Bible has a hundred different things to say about suffering, and we need to hear each and every one of those voices. And today we're going to hear a voice that we don't often hear on the subject of suffering. This is how God responds to Jeremiah in verse 5. If you have raced with men on foot, and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? In other words, Jeremiah, whatever you suffer, it's going to get a lot worse. You think about the woes of the nation and the woes of your neighborhood and the woes of your family and how that presses on you and you feel like you can't endure any more suffering. And God says to him, I tell you, that's like running with men. I'm calling you to a life where you're going to have to run with horses. If this has wearied you out, if this has caused you to doubt me, to run with men, how are you going to turn around and run with horses? That's a startling response. That's a really startling response to hear in suffering. I think it exposes in each and every one of us that no matter who we are, where we come from, how awesome our parents let us in family worship, every single one of us has been coddled by a self-made deity who orbits around our universe. He works in one way or another to maintain our American dream. He entertains prayers for prosperity. He apologizes to us for our inconveniences. He can be co-opted by our causes, and he will sign off on our lifestyle choices. But whenever that deity, that shrink-wrapped plastic deity, comes face-to-face in collision with this God, the God of the Bible, it makes our heads spin when we see the reality. God is not orbiting around us and around our lives and our choices. He is the fixed point around whom our beings exist. We orbit him. God does not answer our questions. God is the one who poses questions to us. And this is the brutal truth. If God tells you and I, it's time to stop running with men and it's time to start running with horses, now you are going to suffer. Every one of us, we bow the knee, we cover our mouths, and we say we are in the face of one too wonderful and too awesome to comprehend. That's God. That's the God we serve. This is in Christianity 101. This is Christianity 201. This is understanding that God does not sit in the hot seat and he does not answer for the suffering we endure. He doesn't have to do that. He is God and we are not. Now, truly, we could end there, right? We could stop, we could pray, we could get the band up, we could kind of sing a final song in a bit of a haze, realizing where we stand with respect to the one true God, and that could happen. God has every right to say what he said to Jeremiah. And for that matter, God has every right to say what he says to Job and to Isaiah and to the Apostle Peter and to the Apostle Paul. He has every right to say those things to us. But he doesn't have to say what he says next. Look at verse 7. He says, I have forsaken my house 
I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me. Therefore, I hate her. If we could even say it this way, God is making himself vulnerable in this moment. Jeremiah, he's made himself vulnerable. He shared his suffering. God, in turn, makes himself vulnerable before Jeremiah. He talks about this people that he loves. Verse 7, the beloved of my soul, they've become like a startled lion. This is my relationship to them. When I appear before them, they turn and they respond. They roar at me in fright because the people that God has loved, has delivered, has guarded, they have completely turned their back on him. They want nothing to do with him. And now God must do the unthinkable. He says, I hate her. I have utterly rejected the people that I have loved from my very soul, and I will have nothing to do with her. Whatever Jeremiah suffers, God is saying in part, I suffer more. God suffers in his grief over this rejection. But he's going to suffer even more for the compassion that he has planned for his people. There's hope at the end of chapter 12. In the very last paragraph of this chapter, God says, After I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them. I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. To get from this prodigal people at the beginning of chapter 12 all the way to restored sons at the end of the chapter, God himself must suffer. God himself is going to run with horses. Right now, Jeremiah is experiencing suffering. He's saying, my family is in a full cry for my blood. Very soon, Jesus will be utterly rejected by his mother and his brothers. Right now, Jeremiah says he feels like a lamb that's being led to the slaughter. And that is precisely the language that Isaiah 53 will use about Jesus. He is oppressed and afflicted like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Jeremiah's Gethsemane will be God's Calvary. But where Jeremiah cries out in our passage in his pain, God, I wish you would set these people apart for the day of slaughter. I wish you would pluck them out and you would be the one to judge them and slaughter them. Jesus will cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When God suffers, when God runs with horses, he bears the sins of those who inflict suffering, He bears the sins of those who carry their own suffering and he wins the titles that come to us in Jeremiah chapter 12. This is what the cross speaks over you and I, his church. You are my house. You are my heritage. You are my vineyard. You are my pleasant portion. You, believer, are the beloved of my soul. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm not sure we're up to the challenge of understanding that we will live 
and suffer cruciform lives that will take up a cross and that will follow you that right now we run with men but you will call us to run with horses and that somehow in some way you speak back the word of the gospel to us in our suffering that we are the beloved of your soul father i pray that we would trust and know that you are good I pray that we would be in awe and humility that you are God. I pray that we would bow and worship for you when you give and when you take away. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.